So it's just entirely possible that you're sitting there thinking, wow, I could never, I could never memorize books of the Bible like Lawan. First of all, I would encourage you not to underestimate yourself. But secondly, I think there's great value in memorizing Scripture. You can see so many places in the Bible that talks about this where we're invited to hide God's word in our heart, that I might not sin against you, that when Satan was assaulting Jesus in the wilderness, his knowledge and depth and breadth of Scripture is the thing that he used to stand against the evil one. So why don't you just start with one or two verses, memorize them, let them soak deep into your life, and go from there. Let's pray before we look into God's word. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we're told in scripture itself that it's a revelation of you, and we the terminology we use is it's a specific revelation, that the creation that you brought it about is a general revelation where we learn so much about you, but more specifically, the Word of God uh, shows and demonstrates for us who you are and the story that you want to write in our life. And so we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the fact that it points us to Christ. And we invite you now to speak into our life as only you can through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is number six in a series of eight messages in the book of 1 Peter. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, which is over towards the end of the scriptures. The, um, if you come to James, it's just, just past the book of James, Hebrews, James. Right after that, you'll come to 1 Peter and today we're going to be looking in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And, and as I do this, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Dear friends, Peter writes, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and it begins with us. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator, and continue to do good. The most encouraging message you didn't want to hear. The most encouraging message you didn't want to hear. Peter wrote the book of the letters of First and Second Peter, uh, likely in the era of 64 to 68 AD. This is what most biblical scholars would point to during a time when the church was going through extreme persecution. And we referenced this last week that 
Nero, if you know your Roman history, Nero was the emperor at that time. And Nero was a deeply twisted, disturbed individual. We know from history that he killed his own mom. And on Mother's Day, like, does it get any worse than killing your own mom? He killed his own mom. He killed his first wife, likely killed his second wife. He wanted to build in the city of Rome. The Senate said no to him. And so he, you know, got got a pout on and he had large sections of the city burned. When they started to get upset with him for doing this, we're told that he blamed the people that he hated in the culture. And even though they hadn't done it, he laid this off on them, the Christ ones, the Christians, the followers of Jesus. And he made it appear that they were the ones that had burned the city. If we fast forward to current day, depending on the part of the world that you live in, the persecution in many parts of the world is extreme. There are many who would argue that it is the worst that it has ever been in the history of the world right now. And there are people around the world right now who didn't burn Rome, who didn't do anything criminal at all. All they did is said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And they're in enslaved because of this, literally enslaved. They're beaten. They lose jobs. They lose opportunities at education. They're separated from their families. They're sent to jail. And that's going on every day around in places in the world. Now, there's other parts of the world, such as here, where it's not nearly as, as extreme. But Jesus reminds us in the book of John, he says, listen, if you're going to be a faithful biblical follower of me, there are going to be people in this world that hate you, not because you've done anything wrong, but simply because you're my follower. There is going to be people in the world that hate you. And so Peter says in verse 12, he says, don't be surprised, Peter says, at the fiery trial. And what he's talking about in this book is he's saying, listen, if you decide to live boldly for Christ. Now, notice notice I did not say live obnoxiously for Christ, like kind of a jerk for Jesus. Not saying anything like that. But if you decide to live biblically for Jesus and live boldly for Jesus, to live a life that's set apart, uh, Peter says, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised if you're ridiculed, if you're unfairly criticized, if you face spiritual opposition. And let me just remind you and say to you, we can live as carefully and considerately as possible. But if we're living boldly for Jesus, don't be surprised if persecution comes. This is what Peter is saying. Now let me just say, some of you are perhaps sitting here thinking, I can't ever think of a time in my life where I ever faced any kind of opposition from my faith. Why might that be? Well, I can think of perhaps a couple, three reasons for that, but perhaps it's most likely illustrated something like this. Think of a sports team with me. And the coach is looking at the opposition team. 
And he's viewing the players. He scouted the players on that opposition team. And he sees one player or just a small group of players that are just working way harder than everyone else on the team. They're putting it all on the line, this individual or these few people. They are scoring the goals. You can see that they are in the right place at the right time because they're into it. And they're paying attention what's going on. And then there's another group of players on the team who are not nearly as into it as those few select players are. They're distracted. And they have the jersey on. They have the equipment. But they're waving at their girlfriends in the stands. They're taking selfies of themselves on the bench. And they're just not paying attention and laying it on the line like the other people are. Who do you think that coach, as he's scouting that team, is going to assign one-on-one coverage to? And, in, and, and if, they're really, if they're really out there, they might even assign two-on-one coverage on that person to make sure that they can do whatever they can to try and stop what that individual is trying to do. The evil one wants to attack us all because he's a despicable person character, whatever you want to call him, fallen angel. But he's most concerned about the people on Jesus' team who are engaged. The ones that are praying for miracles. The ones that are offering to their life, their life to God in an unrestricted manner. That are giving generously. That are using the spiritual gifts that God has put in every single person's life. For the sake of God. For the, for the glory of Christ. And the other players on the team, they have, they have the Jesus jersey on. And they show up sometimes, but they're not really engaged. And it only makes sense that the enemy will not be as focused on those. The moment we say yes to Jesus. The moment we really step into whatever he has for us. There is a spiritual enemy that takes note of that. And he will come at us. And we will face opposition. In the seen and unseen world that is going on all the time right now. And if you've never faced any any sense of real spiritual opposition, can I just say gently to you as your pastor, could it be that you're just not on the front lines? Could it be that you're not engaging in the battle in the way that God has invited us to do? So Peter says, hey, hey folks, don't be surprised, in verse 12, at the fiery trials. And it could well be and likely is that he used that specific terminology because we know from history, we referenced this last week, that Nero had such a hate on for these Christians, these Christ ones, these Jesus followers, that he, when they would, he had them killed in a variety of ways. And one of the ways he did it is he took them and had them dipped in wax, tied to trees or stakes, and then lit on fire to light up his garden parties at night. If Peter was writing right now in the context of the Middle East, in some parts of the Middle East, he might be writing something like this. Don't be surprised if you lose a loved one because of your faith in Christ. 
or if you're in a predominantly Muslim country, don't be surprised if your family turns away from you and you are expelled from the community or you face extreme danger because of your act of faith. If you are a first-year university student at the University of Lethbridge, you might be accused of being out of touch. You might have been accused of being intolerant. You might have be accused of, of having deep-freezed your brain or following medieval thinking. And of course, these are all very empty insults, but they sting. And why is this, Peter says? Because you're in the game. You're on the front lines, and you're saying, Jesus, I'm open to you to be used in any way you see fit. I want to make a difference for your honor and glory. And when we make this kind of commitment, as they were doing in the early church, that rattles the darkness in hell. And Peter is saying, if this takes place, don't be surprised when we face opposition. And then he writes the most encouraging message you didn't want to hear. He says in verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That's kind of different, isn't it? Rejoice that you're persecuted for your faith. In a sense, he's saying, welcome it. Not in a, in a masochistic, inappropriate, I enjoy pain kind of way. He's not saying that. But rather, he's saying, through this, I get to be partners with the living Christ. Through this, I, I identify with Jesus in his suffering. Through this, I'm in more distinctive unity with the living Christ and will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed in all the world. We talked a little bit about this last week, and the big idea last week was we win. We win because of the living Christ. Now, all of this, the tone of this passage, this tone of this book, it, it, understand this is not in any sense about God allowing this so that we will fail. No, it carries with it um, the idea of refinement. It carries the sense of revealing, revealing the genuineness of our faith. And this is God's goal, that we would come out at the end stronger in our relationship with him. And as I indicated earlier, <clears throat> depending on the time in history you are, depending on uh, the location where you are in the world, there's all kinds of different levels of persecution. And so then he says in verse 14, um, when you're insulted, if you are insulted, that doesn't mean somebody just calls you a few names. The Greek there means that you're actually rejected by the society, which we obviously are seeing increased evidence of here in our own society. As we continue to be marginalized as a people group within the North American culture, as we continue to see increasing evidence, it's still minor by comparison to many parts of the world, but we're definitely seeing more and more evidence that we are seen as the enemy, the people that need to be controlled, the people that are not liked in some circles. So why is it that some of us have never experienced 
even a sniff of any of that. Well, I think one of the reasons is because our culture is incredibly good at convincing us that we deserve a nice, easy day. We deserve a pain-free day. The culture is extremely good at suggesting this to us at nauseam over and over and over again. In fact, we will even try at times as believers to pursue comfort, that kind of comfort, in the name of Jesus. You know, and sometimes we'll pray, so just listen to me very carefully here for the next minute or two. You know, we'll pray, bless us, keep us safe, don't ever let anything difficult happen to us, protect us at all costs, keep me comfortable. Now, I'm not saying we should not pray for protection. Not saying that. I pray for protection for myself, for my family, for the ministry of our church. Not saying that. But at times, because I think of the impact of the culture in us, it moves beyond that to where we're saying, Lord, keep anything from me that has any edge to it and keep me comfortable. And we, we sort of position ourselves to dodge any opposition and take the path of least resistance. And I'm going to suggest that when we avoid all opposition, our faith tends to weaken. We find ourselves not standing for anything and not passionate about much. And we don't sense the type of closeness with Christ that we used to have. Someone has said, our greatest need is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of Christ. Let me say that to you again. Our greatest need is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of Christ. Isn't that what Peter is saying here? I think it is. And again, isn't that the most encouraging message you don't want to hear? And he says, well, you know, in verse 15, he says, listen, not everybody that suffers can consider themselves blessed because sometimes they're suffering for criminal activity or even just for meddling, sticking their nose into things they shouldn't stick their nose into. There's no blessing in that, Peter said. But if we suffer because of Christ, we can hold our heads high. See, in 64 to 68 AD in that time, the Christians were being accused of criminal activity that they didn't do. They didn't burn the city. This happens around the world all the time. People that are simply following Jesus are accused of criminal activity around the world to cover up the fact that they want to persecute these people for their faith. You're a spy. They haven't been spies. They're just living for Jesus. You're, you're, you're mixing things up politically in some parts of the world that's not in an appropriate way. They're just following Jesus. And so Paul, Peter says to us, he says, listen, when Christian, when you go into court and you've been falsely accused like this, you can hold your head high. Don't be ashamed, the text says. Because this brings honor to Jesus. And it's simply them being different in the culture. He talks about that back in chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Let me read it. As a result... He does not live the, the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
This is, he's talking about people that are Jesus followers. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange. So their friends have noticed they're not entering into this stuff anymore. He says, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. They've noticed something different about these followers of Jesus. Their life is different in radical ways. And for any number of reasons, they don't like that. And so they're heaping abuse on the followers of Christ. It says back in chapter 1, verse 1 of First Peter, that in actuality, we are strangers here. That we're this is not really our home. That in a sense, C.S. Lewis described it like this, that even though we're at home, we're still homesick. Tolkien talks about this as well. And the idea that they were trying to point us to in their writings, those two uh, wonderful people from England, is that, that heaven is our home. And even though we're sort of, we're home here, you know, go home to 310 Silkstone Cove, we're home here, but we're still homesick. And that's why Peter says in chapter 1, verse 1, we're actually strangers here. Strangers here. We serve a king whose standards are very different. And when we live boldly for Christ, Peter says, don't be surprised when you face opposition. And it will strengthen your faith. In verse 17, Peter H. David's talking about this. One of my professors from, from years ago, he's written a number of books, and one of them, he talks about this, and he says, for those who can't stomach the idea of a real hell and try to explain it away, if God allows, he says in verse 17, if he allows this tough stuff for those that are his devoted followers, his chosen children, if he allows that for them, how severe will it be for those at the final judgment who have willingly and knowingly and repeatedly rejected the grace that God has offered? Who have said over and over again, I want nothing to do with Jesus. When you look at it in that light, from that perspective... As Jesus' followers, we're way better off than it might first appear. Then he goes on to verse 19 and he says, so then. In other words, in light of all of that, so then. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So then. There's four times in the book of 1 Peter where this theme of suffering according to God's will comes up. So then, in light of all that, do good despite the circumstances. This is what Peter says. Do good despite the circumstances. Do things that are pleasing to God, that bring honor to God. And he will never fail us through this. This is one of the big ideas running through the book. 
in every area of our life, with our family, with our finances, in our relationships, in our work life. Do what's right. Do what is biblically right and trust God with the results. I will do what is biblically right in God's strength and I will trust God with the results. And so we don't cut corners. We repent where we need to. We have the hard conversations when we have to have them. We say to whoever, I'm sorry I can't do that thing that's not right. Even though I know in not doing that, it's probably going to cost me. But I won't do it because my values have been changed. We do good, biblical good, and we trust God with the results. Some of you know that uh, when I was growing up, my whole family, my sister and I, my mom, my dad, all came to Christ and knew him as our personal Savior and Lord over the course of one year. Began with my sister, then a few months after that, my mom, not long after that, me, and six, eight months after that, my dad. And uh, I was just a few days short of my 11th birthday when I gave my life to Jesus. And my parents were in their 30s. And it changed our family, radically changed. Even though we were, you know, moral people and, and, you know, we would be considered good citizens by most people, it changed us, changed our values. And as we were growing in Christ, I remember there was times where we just took some not obnoxious, but just some definitive stands for Jesus. And my parents, brand new believers, they modeled well for us these kinds of things. And so one of the things that was that way in our family was when I had, I can't remember if I was 11 or just about 12 years old, so we were still very new in the faith. And it was the beginning of hockey season. And I was trying out at that time for a, an A-level team. So that was a team where <laughs> you weren't good enough, you got cut. And if you weren't performing, you got benched. And there was no excuses. They wanted to win, and they were very disciplined in their approach. And uh, so I was trying out for this team. And uh, my dad was an incredibly good athlete. But he never put inappropriate pressure on me but he was a way better athlete than I had ever hoped to be. I remember when he was in his 30s, he would skate circles around the 18-year-olds at the hockey rink. He was an incredibly fast skater, really good. And so it was important to my dad if I could make this team and do my best and try hard. Again, he didn't try to pressure me, but it was important to him, and it was really important to me. And for us as believers... Um, We talked about it as a family, and my parents said, we know and we've been taught from the Bible that being part of a church is very important. There's no plan B with God. We knew that very quickly. And so we, we understood and we were taught that when we're in a church, we're in community, and there's a place of accountability, and a place where I can give, and a place where I can serve, and these are all crucial elements in the life of a growing believer. And so, uh, 
there came a moment of monster sacrifice for both my dad and for me, where he sat me down and he said, you know, I think you need to go and talk to your coach. And this was just as the, just as the, the tryouts were about to start. And so off I went. I was 11, maybe 12 years old. He didn't go with me either. He sent me. This is one of those moments in Scott's life. So I sat down with my coach, who was actually Ron Lancaster, kind of a famous football player. And I said to him, very respectfully, said, I really want to make this team. I promise to do my very best. I'll work hard. But recently, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he's... He's the most important thing in my life. I don't totally get it, but he's the most important thing in my life. And I want to continue growing in my relationship with him. And so part of that um, is not just going to church, but being active and serving and, and words to that effect. And so I said to him, if I was to make this team, I won't be available to practice or to play Sunday mornings for these hours. This was a big deal for our family. Because I wanted to make that team. So I didn't know if I'd get, even get a chance to try out for the team, let alone play, or if I'd get benched or what. I didn't know what would happen. And when you're 11 or 12 years, let me just say this. If you're 11 or 12 years old here today, don't ever let somebody say to you, you cannot make a bold stand for Jesus. Because you can or if you're 14 years old, or 19 years old, or 32 years old, or 48 years old, or 52 years old. You can make a bold stand for Jesus. We live boldly for Jesus, and we trust him with the result. So what did the coach say? Did I get to try out for the team? Did I make the team? I'm not going to tell you. And here's why. Because that's not what matters. To be honest in life, in life when we live boldly for Jesus, at times we will suffer. And at other times we won't. If we are following Jesus, we will not raise our kids the same way. We won't use our money the same way. We will have different morals, different values. We will have biblical values. And it says in the Bible that there will be people in this world that will hate us for that. Don't be surprised. Having said that, I believe with all my heart that persecution never ultimately hurts the church. It strengthens us. It causes our roots to go deeper into things that matter the most in life. And when the more severe persecution comes, which I believe is coming, it helps prepare us for that. Because we get to partner with and identify with the living Christ. We get to be in unity with him and rejoice with him when his glory is revealed and we are there with him. The most encouraging message you didn't want to hear. 